We're working our way through the book of Acts, all right? But I don't want you to turn to the book of Acts today. We'll, we'll get to where I'm going to tell you here in just a moment. But the book of Acts, as we're walking through it, is really uh, a, a historical narrative of the first 50 or so years of the church as it began to expand throughout the Roman Empire. And, and as we go through Acts, what I've wanted to do, I've never done this before, but I want to do a, a deep exposition of the book of Acts, but as we bump into key people or key places in the book of Acts, I, I want to branch out for a minute and explore those people and those places, kind of like we did with the book of Galatians. A few weeks ago. How many of you say, because we overview the book of Galatians a few weeks ago, I think I got that book. I understand it better than I did before. Okay, three people are with me, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Over the last several weeks, what we've kind of seen again and again is that one of the biggest challenges that the church faced in those early decades was the potential for a huge rift uh, to divide Jewish Christians from Gentile Christians, and we've seen that in a couple of different places as we've walked our way through the book of Acts. And last week, we were in Acts chapter 15, and we were looking at a particular situation in Acts chapter 15 where the potential rift between Jewish believers and Gentile believers had gotten really big, so big that they all knew something's got to be done about this issue. And so they, they called a church conference in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And you get the sense, or at least I did last week as I was reading in Acts chapter 15, that Paul and Barnabas and Peter, all the other men and women of faith there who maybe represented both sides of the issue, I get the sense that they all were sort of waiting to hear from one man in particular, to hear what he had to say about this particular issue. And that man's name is James. And as I told you last week about James, he was really sort of seen as the lead pastor, maybe, of the church in Jerusalem. He was a key leader there. He had a reputation for being wise. He had a reputation for being just. He had a reputation for being a man of prayer. Bonus points, if you know what his nickname is. Old Camel Knees, right? Old Camel Knees, because he spent... Brian, stop pinching the baby, dude. What are you doing? Y'all are new to this, obviously, right? Yeah, never, never had babies before, so it's all right, man. Sounds of life. We praise the Lord. Calloused knees. His knees look like a camel because he spent so much time in prayer. Wise and a man of prayer. Have you noticed those two things really sort of, you may hold him? I don't mind. Huh? He just wanted to, Brian, huh? Yeah, yeah. So I said, what does he call him? He's not talking yet, is he? He was trying. He had lots to say. (laughs) James was a man full of wisdom and he was a man of prayer. You can't separate those two things, can you? When you spend a lot of time with the Lord in prayer, guess what? God's going to provide wisdom into your life and for you. It was James last week in Acts chapter 15 that really clarified for us the doctrine of salvation that what Paul had been preaching was right on. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that wasn't enough for Pastor James. He didn't want to just stop at helping people believe the right way. He was also concerned that believing the right way would translate into people behaving the right way. You see, James wasn't just trying to make sure that we had 
gospel correctiveness, he was also interested that the church had gospel culture. And I love that uh, about James. You know, Paul, I think, and, and I love Paul, I know you do too, but I think Paul probably had sort of sometimes the attitude that said, this is the truth, either believe it or don't. Get in the bus with us or get left, but here's where we're going, right? And then Barnabas, you kind of feel like Barnabas had the sort of personality that just said, hey, let's just hug it out, y'all. We're going we're gonna to love each other. We're going to make it through this together. And, and you need both of those people, certainly, when you're working together in the kingdom of God. But then you have James. James kind of brings it all together. James is not going to waver on the truth, but he's also very concerned about the way in which that truth is practiced. What does it look like in the real world, in a real place, in real time? James sort of has this mindset that says, it's great if what you believe is right, but if that's not transforming your life and changing the way that you live and your attitude and your actions and your approach to life, then what's the point? And if you can begin to understand that about the person James, kind of how he was wired up by God, kind of what his philosophy and mentality is, if you get that about James, then I think the book of James is going to make a lot more sense to you today. So that's where I want you to go today. As we overviewed the book of Galatians a couple of weeks ago, today we want to kind of fly over the book of James at about 10,000 feet, taking a pause out of our journey in the book of Acts. Here's what we know about James, the person that we believe wrote this little book in your Bible called the book of James. He's the younger brother to Jesus. Imagine that pressure, right? Growing up with Jesus. And he's Jesus's younger brother. This means that like Jesus had, James also had grown up as the son of a carpenter. That, that's probably more um, like stonemason. If you've ever been to Nazareth, there's no wood there. It's all stone. So the word for carpenter also has the idea of being a stonemason. So Joseph might have been a, a, a stonemason, more likely. That was probably his vocation. And Jesus and James would have been trained up in that, in that small little town called Nazareth. Here's what's interesting about James. As Jesus began his public ministry, and began to claim to be who he is, little brother James didn't buy it. James didn't believe him. James was a skeptic at best. In Mark chapter 3, we have that moment where the Bible tells us that Jesus' family actually tried to tell Jesus, you need to knock all this craziness off because you're, you're crazy. You're a little touched in the head. You're a fry short of a happy meal. You're the dullest knife in the drawer, right? Whatever, but you're kind of embarrassing everybody and embarrassing yourself, so let's pull back from what we're doing. John chapter 7, verse 5 says this, for even his brothers, they didn't believe in him. So what changed? What changed about James that he would go from, this, there's no way my older brother is God. There is no way my older brother is the Messiah. There is no way to becoming, oh yes, he is the Messiah. He is God, very God. So much so that James becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. What happened? Well, Paul tells us what happened to James. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says this, I passed on to you 
what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This was Paul's way of saying, as I write this, I can take you to people right now who could tell you they saw the resurrected Lord. If you ask me who I'm talking about, I'll name names and I'll Google their address and I'll take you to them and you can knock on the door and you can ask them for yourself. Paul says some of those have died, but not all have. Some are still alive. And then verse 7 he says, and then he was seen by James. You notice that, how James gets singled out, out of everybody? It's the feeling of this was a one-on-one moment, right, between a resurrected Jesus and his younger brother, James. And I just wonder, what all did they talk about? What, What all did Jesus have to say to James? Was this when Jesus said, hey, listen, not only am I asking you now to trust me and to be saved and to be reconciled to God... But I'm also going to ask you to to lead my church in Jerusalem. I I want you to be the the main person that provides leadership. You may not have believed me in my life, but you heard me preach. You heard me teach. And by the way, you can kind of take the book of James and lay it next to the Sermon on the Mount. Man, there's an awful lot of similarities between what James says in his book and what his big brother said in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know everything that might have happened in that conversation, but we know this, his life was changed. He had watched his brother die. He knew he was dead. He watched him be buried in a tomb, and now he knows that he is alive, and he quickly becomes one of the most respected leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And as we said earlier, we saw last week what a masterful job James did navigating that very difficult situation between the Jewish and Gentile Believers, But even prior to that, prior to Acts 15, James was already making an impact. His mission had already begun. He had a heart to see the Jewish people, like him, know that Jesus was the Messiah. He had a heart to see that those people would understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. He had watched Jesus live. He may not have believed him right initially, but he watched his life. And James has a passion to see other people live the life of Jesus, a real faith in a real world in real time. James had an important and effective ministry there in Jerusalem for about 30 years. And then he was taken up to the rooftop of the temple, history says, and because he refused to recant his faith in Christ, he was thrown off the roof of the temple. And there he was reunited in glory with his big brother. But his heart and his ministry lives on in God's word in the book of James. So let's take a quick look at this book. James is writing this letter to Jewish believers who were scattered from Jerusalem. We think James probably wrote this book actually before Acts 15 happened. We think the Jerusalem council that we saw last week in Acts chapter 15, they probably were meeting somewhere around 49 AD. We don't think that James, uh, we think James wrote the book of James prior to that council because what was decided in that council was so important, it seems that he would have included some of that 
in the book that he wrote, but he didn't. So that leads us to believe he probably wrote the book of James prior to 49 AD, which would then mean the book of James is probably the first book that was written in our New Testament, right? The second book was probably the book of Galatians that we already overviewed a couple of weeks ago. So some people have read, and and maybe you're one of these people, and it's okay if you are because it's a struggle here, but some people have read that what James writes and what Paul wrote in Galatians, and they draw the conclusion that these two men didn't agree on the doctrine of justification by faith. They would say that Paul argues, rightly, that we're made right with God, we're justified, declared righteous by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then they would say about James, James adds works to that. That James would be saying in his book, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, plus works that a person is made right with God. Let me be clear, that is not true. There are no conflicts in God's word between Paul and between James when it comes to this. The whole point of James is to say Saving faith leads to the doing of good works. You can't separate the two out. He and Paul are not contradicting each other. They're simply placing the emphasis on different places. Paul is placing the emphasis on the the doctrine of salvation. And James is placing the emphasis on what salvation looks like lived out in the life of a person in the real world. So Paul is focused on helping us believe the right things. That's so important. But James is focused on helping us behave the right way. And that's also so important. He wants to paint a picture of what a real faith looks like in the real world, in real time. So that's what we want to talk about quickly today. We're going to do the whole book of James, almost. I'm going to skip some places for the sake of time. But what, on your notes, what, what does a real faith look like? That's the question before us today. What does a real faith look like? Is my faith real? How do I know? So we're going to give you, believe it or not, real fast, <laughs> 17 characteristics. I know. It's a whole book, y'all, all right? It, I'm not charging you extra for it. It's just you're blessed today, all right? 17 characteristics of real saving faith. Verse 1, James, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't flex and go, I'm his brother because I'm his servant. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Why are the 12 tribes, the Jewish people, why are they scattered? Because they're facing trials. They're facing persecutions. Lives have been taken. Property has been seized. People have been imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus. So James is writing to a people that have little to no earthly stability remaining in their lives. And he comes out of the gate with this. And here's the first characteristic a faith that's real. Number one, real faith endures trials. It endures trials with joy and confidence. Verse two, James says, my brother, and count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Were they facing trials? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. And he says, listen, your faith is real because you count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, all kinds of trials, knowing there's confidence. We have joy and confidence, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. In other words, don't rush it. 
When you're facing those trials, don't try to microwave that process, but walk with God patiently through that with joy and with confidence. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, James is saying, listen, God is taking what's meant for evil and he's using it for good. So as you face trials, real faith is going to have joy and confidence. Number two, real faith endures trials with wisdom from God. When you're facing those trials and your loved one has been arrested or their life has been taken away or your property has been seized and you're being pressured to recant your faith in Christ, what are you going to do with that? I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how I should respond or what I should do. And James says, here's what real faith does. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He loves to give wisdom to his people, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is real faith. Real faith endures trials with joy and confidence, with wisdom from God. Number three, real faith endures trials with the right perspective. Got to have the right perspective of this. Here's good news. Trials aren't going to last forever. Amen? Here's here's more good news. The good times you have in this life are not going to last forever. All of that soon will pass. It's all temporary. Look at what he says in verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Got to have that perspective in the middle of trials, that this is not forever. This is going to This is for a a time. This is for a season. But this too is going to pass. This is real faith. It faces trials with joy, with confidence, with wisdom, with the right perspective. But then James pivots because here's the deal. Jeremiah, our biggest problems are not on the outside of us. Our biggest problems are inside of us, right? Our hearts and our minds are often tempted and lured into sin. So number four, real faith endures temptation with an understanding of it. Verse 13 of chapter 1, James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That's not from God. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. See, the problem is within, the battle is within by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. It brings forth destruction. And James wants us to know, look, God's not my problem. I'm my problem. It's those desires within me. That's my problem. God is not my problem. God is the solution. The battle is in me. This demands that I continually preach the gospel to myself. And that leads us to number five. Real faith endures these temptations, not only by understanding the nature of temptation, but by remembering how good God is. In Romans 2.4, Paul says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James says, listen, when you're faced with temptation, remember how good God is. You were dead in your sin. And for his own good pleasure, God brought you from death to life so that he could present you as his cherished and prized redemptive image bearers. He's done this out of his goodness. Number six, real faith is a doer of God's word, not just a hearer. So we're dealing with temptation, we're dealing with trials, but we also want to be active. He says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Skip down to verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Don't just talk it, walk it, do it. Be doers of the word. He turns to chapter 2. What are we talking about? We're talking about real faith. How do you know your faith is real? What does real faith look like? Number seven, real faith does not show partiality. He says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down here on the floor at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What's he saying? Real faith doesn't do that. Real faith doesn't pick winners and losers. Real faith doesn't show partiality. Number eight, real faith is seen in good works. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The obvious answer to that is no. Not that kind of faith. A faith that produces no works is obviously not a saving faith. Merely talking about faith doesn't make you a person who has saving faith. Listen, here it is. Here's really the book of James in one statement. If you got real saving faith, you can't hide it. It's going to show The Holy Spirit's going to be working it in you and through you and from you and out of you. It will produce good works. But if your faith is all talk and no walk, then you should really consider if your faith is a counterfeit. If it's fake, if it's phony. He says in verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. If your faith is all talk, it's worthless, he says. Your faith in Christ gives you a king to live for and a kingdom to advance in this fallen and broken world by doing these good works. Verse 18, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. Well, how could you do that? Faith is invisible, Works is what proves that you have faith. How could you show somebody your faith without works? It's impossible. And that's James's point in writing this letter. There's no such thing as true faith without good works. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. 
Verse 19, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. The demons have a belief system. The demons believe in God. They have faith, but you know their faith is not a saving faith. Why? Because they don't do good works. All that they do is evil. Maybe your faith is a demonic faith today. You believe God's real. You even respect Him. You might even have a little fear about Him. But you don't love Him. And you don't serve Him. I hope that's not true of you. But we need to be asking ourselves these questions. Is my faith real? Number nine, chapter three, real faith strives to control the tongue. I say strives to control the tongue because James is going to admit nobody's won this battle yet. (laughs) But you know your faith is real when you want to and you're trying to. Chapter three starts with a caution to those who use the tongue to, to teach like I'm doing right now. Teachers have to speak a lot. And that's a risky business to be in. Proverbs says, when words are many, sin is present. By the way, you can also kind of put James and the book of Proverbs side by side. They're very similar. Wisdom of Proverbs, wisdom of James, good stuff. He says, verse 1 of chapter 3, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. See, we all stumble when it comes to things that we say. We can't take it back. It's like squeezing the toothpaste out of the tube. You can't take it back. can't go back in there. But we need to be aware of how big a deal our speech is, how big a deal what we say is. And a person whose faith is real is going to want to keep his tongue in check because they know it has the power to give life. It has the power to destroy. Verse 3, he says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths and that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature, Creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. You can go to a circus and you can watch these wild animals that have been tamed, but you can't have a gathering of people under the same roof and find that anybody's got their tongue tamed. Verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Do you hear James's heart? I want you to believe the truth, but I want you to behave the truth. I want you to live it out. I want you to exhibit real faith in a real world in real time. And the person with real faith keeps this in mind. They don't want to lose sight of how powerful their tongue is. And they want it to be used for good and not for evil. Number 10, Real faith lives wisely, lives wisely. Verse 13 of chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom that you're working with, 
does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Living wisely. How do you know your faith is real? Because you're walking in the wisdom that comes from God. Number 11, real faith doesn't act like the world acts. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust, you don't have, you murder and covet and can, cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's James doing? He's describing people here who are driven by selfishness, who are driven by greed. These are people that are living according to the ways of the world. His point is this is how the world operates. And if your faith is real, your world is not supposed to operate this way. Your life is not supposed to look this way. This shouldn't be the mindset that you have. This should not be the way that you handle yourself in this world. And then James calls them out. He says, you've been unfaithful to God when you live like the world. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Real faith is a friend of God. It's living with the wisdom of God. Number 12, real faith draws near to God. Verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a promise. What a promise. A person with real faith resists the devil, draws near to God, and the promise is God's drawing near to you. Number 13, real faith submits itself to God. Submits itself to God. He says, verse 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, We'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Here's my plan. <laughs> here's, my, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Got it all laid out. And he says, verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it's gone. It vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we'll do this or that. In other words, James says, real faith doesn't say, hey, God, here's my plan. Bless it. Real faith says, God, I want to be in your plan because it's blessed. I'm not asking you to revolve your life around me, Jesus. I would love to have the honor of revolving my life around you. Number 14, chapter 5, real faith deals justly with others. Remember, this is James the wise or James the just. In chapter 5, James calls out those who don't have real faith. Their faith is counterfeit. They've acted without fairness. They've acted without justice toward other people. Verse 4 He says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. God is concerned about those who have been abused. God is concerned about those who have been mistreated. And he calls those who have real faith to also be concerned about people like that. Not to pounce on people like that. Not to pile on, but to show the compassion of the Lord to those people. Number 15, real faith patiently looks for the Lord's return. Verse 7, he says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently 
for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts because the Lord's coming. His coming is at hand. Real faith is patiently waiting for the Lord. Number 16, real faith prays. Verse 13, is anybody among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. We have people in our room today that bear witness of this. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We all can testify to that. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then he gives an Old Testament example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. and He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Real faith prays. Number 17. Real faith points people to God. That's what real faith does. It points people to God. Verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and somebody turns him back, somebody among us is going down the wrong road, the person who has real faith goes after that person and turns them from the wrong way to the right way. That's real faith. Because it's not an easy thing to do to insert yourself into the will of another who seems to be hell-bent on going the wrong way, but to love enough and to care enough, to have faith enough to turn him back. Verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Is your faith real? Is it real? Because there's this really haunting thing that James's big brother said one time. He said, there's going to be a day that some people are going to stand before him and I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to show me their list. They're going to show me their resume. They're going to boast in all the things that they did and they accomplished in their life. But I'm going to say, depart from me because I've never known you. Their faith wasn't real. They might have done good things, but their faith was deficient. What about your faith? Is it real today? James says real faith endures trials. With joy, confidence, wisdom, right perspective, it endures temptations. With an understanding of how temptation operates, where it comes from, by remembering how good God is. And real faith is a doer, not a hearer. Does not show partiality. Seen in good works. Strives to control the tongue. Lives wisely, not according to earthly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom. Doesn't act like the world. Draws near to God. Submits to God. Deals justly with other people. Patiently looks for the Lord's return. Real faith prays and real faith points people to God. James wrote this big long letter to really just do one thing. To hold up in front of people like me and you a picture of his big brother. Because that's what he just described, is it not? That's who he just described. From the first word of this letter 
to the last word of this letter, he just described his big brother. And he says, this is what it looks like. This is what we're aiming for. Right behavior that comes from right belief looks like this. Looks like, looks like Jesus. I can't reach that. Some of you before today, in the past maybe, you even came to this conclusion, I can't do that. I, I don't. I can't. And you threw your hands up and you just said, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm not going to even try anymore. And some of you today, you're here and you're still trying, but, but, but because we're not hitting that mark, man, the guilt and shame monster weighs heavy on our shoulders. Well, this is where James and Paul come together, and James says, Paul, here's Jesus. And Paul goes, good news for me, because to live like that, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Roger, I can't live that, but Jesus can. He did, and he will now. If his people today would humble ourselves before the Lord. It's not about leaving here trying harder. It's about leaving here trusting him more. That's real faith. A faith that says, it won't be me that does this. But Jesus, you in me, through me, I must decrease so that you may increase. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Only he can do this. My faith is in him. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So God, we bow before you today and Jesus, we're so grateful for your little brother and for how he, even when he didn't believe, he was observing your life and how you talked and how you walked, how you treated other people, how you dealt with hard times, how you walked through grief, how you faced temptation. And then ultimately, he saw you as the one who had conquered death and sin in the grave. And then, Holy Spirit, you brought all of that together through your work that we call inspiration. And you put these words on the pages that we've looked at today. Where little brother James held up a picture. Big brother Jesus and said, This is what it's about. This is what our life is supposed to look like. So, God, thank you that you have not called us into this room today to give us a 
holy pep talk An articulate and gifted holy pep talk today is not what we need. We need your Holy Spirit living, operating in these old bones, in this old skin of ours, in our lives, in the real places that we go, in the real time that we live in. Holy Spirit, would you cause Jesus to be seen in us, through us, in spite of us. In his name we pray. I want to invite you to stand. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. I want to look more like Jesus, and I know you do too. Maybe you're here and you've never truly given your life to Jesus. I'd love to introduce you to him. If you do know Jesus, today is a day to say, uh, I bow before you and I confess, Jesus, that I need you. It is not I but Christ that I need to live this life. So I yield myself fully to you today, Lord.